Hello and welcome to Insight Says, a new podcast about mental health and counseling. I'm your host, Kira Deneen, and on our first episode here of this new monthly podcast, I'm going to get to know the owner and director of Insight Counseling in Redfield, Connecticut, Liz Jorgensen. Some background information about Liz if you're not familiar with her. She has 30 years of experience as a psychotherapist specializing in adolescent psychotherapy and substance abuse counseling. She's a nationally recognized expert in substance abuse counseling, engaging resistant teens and motivating them to change. She's also a consultant to independent schools and agencies and is a popular speaker on parenting preteens and teenagers. She's presented nationally, including at Harvard University and Dartmouth College. She's also a recipient of a congressional award for her work as an educator and community prevention activist. Liz worked for 18 years at Danbury Hospital in Connecticut, where she helped develop all the adolescent substance abuse and dual diagnosis programs. Liz is a gifted speaker, and her parenting programs routinely receive outstanding reviews, and I think her skills come through very well during this discussion. And so now I'm going to get to know Liz a little bit and hear about her as a counselor here at Insight Counseling. So I want to start out with why you pursued the field of counseling. Um, you know, I should have known that was going to be the first question, right? So, like, that's like a. Thing. I feel like that. Yeah, that's like. Um, wh- why did you become a counselor? Because here's the weird thing. I, I always say I'm one of those really odd people that like I always knew what I wanted to do, but I thought if you. When I was really little, I knew. I think I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist, because I didn't know there was like a therapist. I mean, this was like the '60s, you know. So I thought to help people with um, psychiatric issues, like you had to like do brain surgery. Um, in fact, one of my school projects was I actually dissected a cow's brain, and I like so it was kind of imminent that or inevitable. That kind of stays Not, with yeah. you to actually like do that. I was like wanted to do that, like but I was like I don't know how old are you in like fifth grade, like eleven. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I just always wanted to, and then also, and this is not I'm not saying this sarcastically at all, but many people who wind up being um, in our field and also quite gifted in our field often have had experience in their families with people with um, organic mental illness, which is certainly the case for me and my family. you've had personal experience, you can really yeah, speak exactly. to it, you've and lived through and it. And also real compassion for it, and, um, you know, because there's still a lot of stigma in our society, but because there were several members of my family growing up that I loved dearly, and some are still alive, I still love them, you know, really suffered. And uh, so it made me really curious about trying to, like, figure things out. So I don't know, I honestly don't even know. I mean, I know how I got interested in substance abuse because I was working as a child, um, I thought I was going to go into school psychology and I was doing an internship at a very, um, very intensive environment for kids with like multiple, um, problems, young kids, like nine to 11. And some of them had organic illnesses like, um, cerebral palsy and Down syndrome and, you know, um, things that were definitely, uh, organic in nature. And, but many of the kids who had severe psychiatric symptoms of trauma had come from families with severe substance abuse disorder. Some of them were in state custody. So then I became intrigued about, like, they were at our school for five days, and then they would go home. They lived there for five days, and then they would go home. So you became weekend. curious about the family dynamics. Yeah, exactly. With the, the substance use. And um, so that's kind of how I veered to that that interest. But, um, but I think I just always wanted to be a therapist. But I used to think that you had to dissect their brain. Which is not it. what you do. Luckily, right? yes. Well, some people do do that, but right. it's like... But not what you specifically ten do. Ten additional years of training, etc. and it's very different, yeah. So then why were you drawn to working with teenagers specifically? Because that's one of the populations that you really specialize in. I, they're just so fun. You know, they're so uh, engaging and creative and energetic and hopeful. 
and just fun. And honestly, it was one of those random things that one of my one of my interns uh, internships. I was placed in working in an environment with teenagers, and I just was good at it, you know. And uh, a lot of people take the teenagers' um, resistance personally, but I just always found it really funny or engaging. Like it didn't bother me. And then my first job at Silver Hill, I was just. Uh, um, they would kind of assign you where you worked, and so I was assigned to working with the teenagers, and I just really, I don't know, teenagers It just clicks. Fun. It, it just clicks. They're right. super fun. I don't take it personally. Um, I don't take any of their hijinks, you know, personally. They're I kind of like animated. it. animated. They really super keep Super animated. Like, that's a really good point. So they constantly, like, like, if you're having a slacker day, you know, a teenager will just call you out, or if you make a dumb mistake, like they'll just let you know, which I like that. Like, I don't, and would never get upset. Like, some of the doctors I work with, they were really nice people, but they would get all offended by the teenagers, and I was just like... You have to take it in stride. Yeah, well, it's actually, like, mostly, but if they would say something that was kind of critical, most of it was true, you know? And I'd be like, oh, you're right. That is an unfair privilege that we gave to that other patient. And you're like, so I just, I just, I don't know. They're, they're fun. And so hopeful. And we do know the brain is developing during adolescence, so... If there's certain learned behaviors that they're struggling with, and, and now we know also organic behavior, organic illnesses are uh, more effectively treated in adolescence as well before they progress. But teenagers can learn things in just a short period of time that if they have an illness that responds to something called cognitive behavioral therapy, they can learn things and turn like major symptoms around rapidly. Things that, you know, adults might struggle with with years because they have overlearned like negative coping patterns and mechanisms so it's also very like fun working with teenagers because if they are engaged if you can kind of sell them on the idea that they could participate in making their lives better and like feeling better they can rapidly improve um so that's really fun too. yeah they're definitely um they have that plasticity in their brains and they're oh, taking in new information and yeah, changing yeah, yeah. So how did you actually become a counselor? You know, you're, you're the owner and director here at Insight Counseling, but how did you get here? Oh, well, I, I, undergraduate I did, um, which was pretty uncom- pretty common at the time, I did like a dual focus on research and clinical work. And then I have a, I have a master's in counseling, which um, was the most expedient degree to get at the time. And I got a scholarship money for that. And I'm actually still working on my doctorate like 15 years later. That's kind of funny. A little embarrassing, but, but the, one the, of these days. The learning never ends. <laughs> I know. You one know, of these it, days. It continues. And in that time, I had already decided to specialize in um, substance abuse. So there to get those courses. Now, this is many years ago. This is like 32 years ago, 33 years ago. There weren't. Nowadays, it's very integrated, mental health and substance abuse. But at that time, there were kind of separate silos and counselors dealt with substance abuse more were psychologists and LCSW social workers social workers dealt more with the mental health um so it was just kind of like the way to go to get your license as a um LADC you did a counseling program and then you specialize in like addiction and addiction um uh and behavior and addiction in the brain and so that was kind of why I made that decision and how would you describe your counseling approach with your um, clients? Like what, how would you think clients maybe describe how you are with them? Well, I would hope that I'm very like engaged and uh, present and uh, I'm very curious. I'm just a curious person. Um, some might say nosy, you know, so that is kind of good if you're a therapist because you really have to get all the information out. 
um, to make the right diagnosis or make the right recommendations, certainly. So um, very engaged. I use a technique called motivational interviewing, which is empirically based. It's trans, trans theoretical, meaning you can be trained in it. If you're a mental health practitioner, you've been trained in it and use all kinds of different techniques for treatment. But motivational interviewing really helps the client. Um, well, you meet the client where they're at and then you help draw out the correct information to get to a treatment plan that works. Because many people come in complaining of one thing, so interesting care, but when you get the whole story out, you find out that's just the tip of the iceberg and that's the most recent symptom. And then you find out maybe they ha really have a very extensive trauma history or, um, you know, maybe learning disabilities that haven't been diagnosed, etc. So motivational interviewing is a technique that helps get as much of the whole story out pretty quickly. So someone could come yeah. in kind of for one issue they're having and then mm -hmm. you kind of as a therapist start discovering that maybe they have a lot more going on in their life that may need therapy. Yeah, although not to say we always believe in meeting the client where they're at. So if a client comes in and they want help with just their depression, of course you focus where the client wants to focus. But with motivational interviewing, I didn't really say that too articulately. What you do is you you're slowly opening the person up to make connections themselves about the different stages of their lives and the different like. Um, so you're creating an environment where they're starting to feel comfortable in doing yeah, that. Exactly. Okay. And it's you're not it's prying it out. Of them. And the yeah. other thing with motivational interviewing, it's collaborative. So it's not, oh, I'm the expert and I'm you know, take. Oh, I mean, I do take notes, but like I'm not on a computer the whole time, not giving you eye contact or whatever. Like we're actually like figuring this out together. So I, I hope my clients would see that. I also use a lot of humor with the teenagers, especially if they're very resistant. Um, often, you know, believe it or not, teenagers don't come to see us because they made the honor roll, you know, usually so either mom and dad are very upset or they've been in some kind of trouble at school or they're failing in school or, you know, there's usually some kind of a crisis situation. So they usually are, you know, rightfully anxious and upset about coming in. So I do use a lot of gentle humor and uh, I, and I explain everything. And I think that usually is really helpful to my clients. Like I explain every single thing. There's no mystery. There's no like secrets no. and kind of like, no. oh, you're doing something on the side. You're, no. you're very upfront and transparent. Everything, very upfront, very transparent. And with the parents as well. So for example, if the parents would like to see the whole problem is the teenager's fault. And we very quickly figure out that parents have management problems maybe a lot of yelling and screaming or maybe a lot of discord in the family like we just talk about it very openly right away and that really tends to help to engage in fact most teenagers just totally stop being resistant if they see that I'm um, getting to the root of the family's problems not just them because teenagers hate being identified as like the problem which any human being would but you'd be surprised how many times that kind of happens in a family now teenagers are usually the loudest and proudest you know but generally, the teenager's issues fit perfectly into maybe the... There's the, more of family dynamics yes, situation. almost always. Even if it's that the family's gone through trauma together. Or, you know, I'm not saying that it's a parent's fault, but, you know... The, and human beings, we're, we're tribal beings, we're social beings. We come with a family. Um, and teenagers are kids, you know. They're, the, the word adolescent means essence of an adult, but they're still children, so they're with their parents, so we are caregivers, or, so we always include the family in, and I think that it, it comes really from important. more of a holistic approach of kind of looking at mm -hmm. more pieces of a person's life than just kind of right. them and their personality yeah. and, and maybe you know yeah. issues that they're having themselves. Yeah. So if I a succinct way of saying that is, so many teenagers come here and young adults too, because um, we run extensive programs for young adults. 
because they've gotten a DWI or they've gotten in trouble with substance use or they've gotten in trouble for cheating in school. And that's always the tip of the iceberg. There's always a lot of other things going on of which those behaviors are a symptom. So that's what my particular way of doing things. I want to get to like, well, what's underneath the behavior, right? And so you have a, a team of people here working at Insight. Oh, I'm so lucky. Yeah, they're so great. So what are the other types of mental health care specialists that you work with, like in, mm-hmm. in Insight, but also maybe a little bit out, outside of Insight? Well, it, we're really lucky that we have all of the specialties, or almost all the specialties in the mental health field represented here. We have uh, Claire Gelson is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and they're specially trained in, in doing like family work. Um, we have an expressive art psychotherapist, Carolyn Kelly Winter. We have two um, social workers, clinical social workers, Kristen Deneen and Dr. Pat Bragdon. And we have a clinical psychologist, Dr. Mary Murphy. We're so lucky we have a collaborative team. Oh, we have a third social worker, sorry, Risa Minikin, who's a clinical social worker. And I would say everybody has their own unique gifts and abilities. And, um, and we are uh, like a co-op. Like we help each other out and... Um, share the uh the planning and the and the um the implementation of of our group programs together so that that's our team here it's really fun you guys definitely all work together just from coming into the office and everything i can see that you guys really have a collaborative workplace environment where you're really helping each other out and and everything so i hope so i mean i don't know really so no one talks behind my back is that you know no (laughs) i know i hope so and i'll tell you can i say right one of the things in starting my own business after many years of working in systems i worked at silver hell i worked at the va hospital in west haven i worked at danbury hospital i really wanted a supportive environment for the staff because the work can be very difficult you know we deal with a lot of tragedies and, and we deal with people in the aftermath of losing family members and sudden deaths, and we've treated many of the Sandy Hook families. And if, if the environment isn't caring and protective for the staff, I just never understood how the work could really be. It extends out from there. Yeah, I really think so. So that's I'm glad you saw that. But, but you are being paid to do this podcast, so that's a disclaimer. That is but true. But I think it's true, <laughs> though. I do think it's true. Well, most of our staff here stays for decades, so that... I guess they're happy. I hope they're happy. And you mentioned, you know, starting your own business and all that. What has the journey been like? Honestly, I had no idea what I was really getting into in the beginning. Um, but I knew I wanted to create an environment that was, a, like I said before, a healthy environment for the staff and therefore for the clients. I'm, I'm just a collaborative person by nature. I, I always joke around that I'm a terminal optimist because it's probably going to kill me. So I've always like been able to, or I always try to reach out and work with people in allied fields and and collaborate um and then we've grown in response to clients needs and and the needs of populations and uh although in many ways my thinking has become more and more firmly rooted in the fact that um human suffering is the root of most clinical symptoms except for there's a and even then you could argue it's human suffering but there are a couple of absolutely organic brain disorders that are genetically predisposed and still mysterious as to when they make their pronounced um, entrance, but they most um, most of the, the organic brain disorders show themselves in adolescence and early young adulthood. So, um, but but no one behaves in aberrant ways in general, except for sociopath, which that's a whole other podcast. But most people, when you look at their quote unquote crazy behavior, there's a really rational like reason 
behind it and it usually has to do with suffering so even i've learned a lot and things have changed here a lot we've grown a lot we have two intensive programs to treat you know people with more serious symptoms but in many ways i keep going back to what i believe for a long time that if you can get to the root of the person's suffering then the other behaviors kind of they just fall away they, they go away so where i think a lot of treatment centers unfortunately focus too much on the behaviors maybe not enough on the root of the behaviors not and not that they're not trying I think it's hard to do. I think it's definitely it's been easier for me to get to the root of things with many years of experience, if that makes sense. That makes sense because mm-hmm. you've had more exposure to really be able to understand from previous clients and everything of where they have come from and, and their experiences mm-hmm. and what kind of ended up being certain diagnoses or certain mm-hmm. treatments that have helped them. Right. And, and also being humble and honest with myself how many times I've been wrong. It's an important thing to right, right. Absolutely, thought I knew something, and thank goodness I'll knock on wood while I say this never to a tragic like outcome. But that certainly could have happened. But that's another reason to work with a group of people. Just none of us is as smart as all of us. I always say that. So no matter what I think about something, if I can talk to Dr. Chu or talk to Kristen or whoever and say, "What do you think about this?" or if we see the client together in a group. We also like to co-lead family therapy often, so uh, especially if there's the family's really, really suffering, um, needs a lot of support, and then there's two of us getting information. And, and then you see different yeah. perspectives. Oh, you absolutely. You've had different yeah, educational yeah, yeah. training. Mm-hmm. And you have a few different groups that you offer here at Insight um, for clients, some for teenagers, some for parents. Can you speak mm-hmm. a little bit about those? Sure. So we run two um, extended group programs, also known as intensive outpatient programs, and those are basically... Um, uh, one is for young adult population, so it's like 18 to, to 28 or 30, and those patients generally have either emerging mood disorders or you know very serious anxiety and depression. Many of them also have substance abuse disorders, um, and that's between six and nine hours of therapy a week, and with individual um, care, often family, you know, therapy, and um, so that's one group program. Then we have an after school, a teenage intensive group program and pretty much treating the same issues but in the younger population obviously that's actually my favorite group they're hilarious and um we keep in touch with many of them over many years um some of them have come back with their own teenagers believe that's, it or not that's it's kind of eerie it's kind of crazy Kristen Deneen actually runs our dbt program so we have groups for teenagers and, and can you define what dbt, oh, DBT is sorry everybody says these initials right so dbt stands for dialectical behavioral therapy so in a nutshell it's one of the it's actually not a new therapy, but it's like a buzzword therapy. It is a therapy that is empirically um, shown to help with the most severe um, psychiatric syndrome of self-harm and suicidality. But it actually, that's how it was developed by someone named Marshall Linehan. And basically what she did was she operationally defined what worked from the monastic um, techniques of meditation and mindfulness but took, made it secular and made it usable for individuals and therapists. Not that you can't, I guess you could, you can have a spiritual perspective and use the techniques that we teach, but you don't have to. It's just, it's, she basically figured out that mindfulness practice, whether in a Buddhist monastery, a Catholic monastery, um, Sufi <coughs> mystics and, and um, in the Islam faith have all figured out that to control the mind is to control the symptoms of the mind. And it's a it's a fascinating therapy. It's it's a curriculum driven therapy, where the patients learn ways to cope with overwhelming um, emotion, and they find it very very helpful. 
And um, so we run groups, I would say for different age groups, but we mostly have for teenagers, young adults, and parents, DBT training groups. Um, and the clients find it extremely helpful. Um, sometimes it's a little hard to get the teenagers to focus because they just want to talk about their significant other and tech. They want to read text messages to us. And we're like, nope, we have and to focus. And that's part of skills uh, as yeah, a counselor. Exactly. Yeah. Rain them back nope. in and focus we on the talk about skills, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, no, they're really fun. They're very, very effective. In fact, I would say that's something that if families are looking for effective treatment for children who are having um, severe anxiety or self, uh, self-harm, you know, cutting themselves very depressed, you really want to look into um, dialectical behavioral treatment. And it's really becoming yeah. state-of-the-art from my point of view. It's really, you know, becoming something that a lot of counselors are starting to use and, mm-hmm. you know, becoming kind of standard. Well, it works. Practices. So it's empirically right. proven. Yeah. So, it's it's and using it, it, that dialectic mind of, yeah. yes, this is happening to you, but remember this also. And it's a lot of, on the other hand, and keeping two things in mind. and that Well, that's exactly. So the dialectic is two things can be true at the same time. And as annoying as it sounds, most conflict happens between people who care about each other when they forget those things. So, so okay, so say in a couple, she's a Republican, he's a Democrat, but they love each other and they're both Americans. And all these things are true at the same time, you know, and people tend to focus on the, the black and white thinking of like, how can you, you know, be a Democrat? How can you be a Republican? Instead of like looking at what is connected or true at the same time. Most patients or clients have an aha moment where they really realize that a lot of their suffering and symptoms is connected to black and white thinking and making things all one way or all the other. A lot of times they fight that in the beginning because they're like, don't you understand? It is this way. Like, this person is just a horrible person. And um, it, and I also like DBT because it's very irreverent. Sometimes, like, you joke around a lot and you, like, use paradoxes. And, like, it's just, it's really great. It's really great. And I, I would... Ask anybody who hasn't tried that therapy yet, but is still struggling with symptoms and maybe given up on therapy. If you haven't tried DBT, because um, it's very skill based, yes. as you said, it's not necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. about really getting talking about yourself a lot. But at least the sessions that you run yeah. here are really about let's learn these skills, let's yes. remind each other of these yeah. acronyms. And then, and then we do talk about the person's like day to day struggles in context of the skills. So it's not like like people don't talk about their problems, but it's like it's. It's problem solving instead of problem complaining. Right. And a lot of therapy actually is highly ineffective because it's grounded in a person talking over and over again about what makes them anxious and what makes them sad, what makes them worried. There's a time for that, especially in grief work, Mm -hmm. of course. And you don't throw skills at somebody who's grieving. They, They need to talk about that. But DBT kind of put the whole field on its heels in a good way, I think, saying, wait a minute, the science shows if an anxious person just keeps talking about what makes them anxious, it makes the anxiety worse. It's like meta-anxiety or something like that. Thank you. It's like it reinforces You worry about worrying. Right. So instead, let's look at a way to teach the client these skills so that they can actually leave therapy and comfort themselves. And I would say, in general, a couple key indicators of a therapy that's highly effective is that the therapist is not interested in having secret knowledge that they hold from you and that they want to teach you these things eventually so that you leave sooner than later, actually feeling better and able to practice the same skills or and techniques on your own. And many therapies are like that, but they tend to be the more cognitively based therapies. And DBT is that way. The whole goal is like learn the skills, practice the skills with my guidance and then use them out in the real world. And then, oh, wow, you don't even need therapy anymore when you came in suicidal. And that's pretty cool. That is a huge, dramatic change. Mm -hmm. 
So what aspects of being a counselor do you really enjoy? Like, why do you love coming to work? Why do you like the work that you do? Wow. I, I like everything but the paperwork, so that's a hard one. <laughs> but I don't think anybody likes the paperwork. I mean, the paperwork is actually okay. It's most most jobs have paperwork, yeah, 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 so it's whatever. kind of a common yeah. denominator. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it's very fun and very meaningful. And uh, I like being middle-aged and doing it still because of... And most of our colleagues here are middle-aged, but not to, nothing against young people. Nothing against young people. I just feel like, like combined, we have like 300 years experience, you know. And That's a lot of wisdom. I know. It's cool. And um, also because nobody here is arrogant, so we all actually keep learning. Like nobody's figured it all out yet, so that's really good. I don't know. It's just always fun. It's always something different. I never not look forward to it. I mean, sometimes I miss, you know, oh, I'd rather be with my family and at work at the same time but I never ever but you're never like oh I wish I had a different job I wish I went for this instead love it love it in fact I'm so greedy sometimes here that like even though other people run the groups and I'm really not even supposed to be involved I just come in and crash the group and the staff is too nice to like kick me out because a lot of times I'll come up and like I'm also like saying hi to somebody that I refer to the group or something like that but like I'm just I like it so much I like want to be in on everybody's stuff here because it's we everybody's just so talented and they do such a great job and it's just so fun i don't know i mean not to say we don't always have perfect days here but like everybody is as a whole it's it's yeah everybody's nice to each other and respectful and i just i love my job and i just i mean i wish insurance paid for more therapy i wish Mm -hmm. there were more hospital beds like those are the things that bug me about being a therapist that there aren't the resources out in our and that's more Culture changes to the patients? field yeah, yeah, as opposed field, to But that has nothing career. to do with our gig. Right. Yeah, yeah, our gig is different. Yeah. So what advice do you have to offer students interested in becoming a counselor? If, you know, maybe there's people listening that are looking for advice or looking for resources or, you know, maybe what to look for in a school. Oh, that's so great. So this is actually, uh, this is advice I wish I had gotten before yeah. I chose yeah, like, my that graduate way. degree. Yeah. So, and, and things do change. So fields change. Um, but if at all possible, try to get the terminal degree in your field. Meaning, so what does that mean? That so, like, no matter what, if you get the furthest degree that you can in your particular specialty. So in social work, there's actually a PhD in social work, but the MSW is considered the terminal degree. Like that's mm-hmm. the the highest degree. Um, in psychology, that's the PhD. Um, in counseling, it's the EDD. Um, in medicine, it's a little bit different because you could either be an APRN, but the the advanced terminal degree, of course, is the medical degree, um, and make that sacrifice right away to do your graduate work. Like, just do it. And even if it means taking on loans, like, just do it. And then the reason you want to go for the first degree is later in your career, if you want to teach, like, for example, I don't need a doctorate, but I need to complete my doctorate because I'd like to teach more eventually. So, like, if I had done that when I was 28... If I you had could already finished, be teaching. Yeah, yeah. So I really like to teach. Well, I do teach a little bit, but more like I teach workshops. I mm-hmm. couldn't get a faculty position, you know, without the terminal degree. Um, also, you just give yourself more time for training. And then the other, this is just a practical thing. A lot of people think they would like to be a therapist, and they don't really understand um, the lack of short-term results with the work. So I would say get an entry-level job, like even as a summer job, at a psychiatric hospital. They have things called uh, nurses psych techs or psych techs 
or counseling assistance. And then, you, you know, you paid like whatever, $12 an hour, $10 an hour. But the same as working at a, you know, restaurant or something. And then you get hands-on experience to see if you'll really like it because... And it's valuable to know if you don't like yes, it. Yes. Because maybe it. you'd go into a different field of yeah. counseling or yeah. a, a... Like, for example, totally when you asked me that question about adolescence, that was my first job was as a psych tech while I was still in graduate school. And, and it clearly I, made a career-lasting oh, impression on you. I love the teenagers. So, and I would say, and those are jobs that anyone can get usually as long as you haven't committed a federal crime and you have a high school diploma. So, like, as you're still an undergraduate... Um, or even summers in, you know, school or whatever you can. And then it's really good on a, on a resume too for um, grad school applications that you did that. And then you're going to really, cause I've had some mid career people come to me thinking they want to be a therapist cause they benefited from therapy and they try that and they hate it cause they get really anxious and it's different than being the client. It's, it's very different. It's very different. And it's not, not to say that they wouldn't maybe be like one woman who wanted, thought she wanted to be a therapist wound up being a, like a career counselor, vocational counselor, which is different than working with people with severe psychiatric illnesses. And, and I, so being like getting a job is, I, I'm struggling with the term cause they used to call it a psych tech. I don't think they call, I think it's in psychiatric nurses aid, counseling assistant, whatever, but most or hospitals, as an intern, or something. intern or something like that, but get in there and jump in. And obviously you're going to be anxious at first. But you're going to see if you really like the work. A lot of people like the idea of being a therapist, but they don't necessarily, they get very anxious doing the work. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah, you got to kind of know if it's going to freak you out yeah. or not. Yeah. yeah, it's like a trial. It's a trial run. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So my last question for you is, if you've had any mentors over the year that's oh. really, you know, given you a lot of advice yeah. and guidance and maybe advice for people to find their own mentors? Oh, that's such a good question. Especially, I think, for women in any field, you want to have strong mentors, and uh, for men too. But um, And I'm going to quote my most influential mentor first by saying I would... Uh, oh, God, how does, his name is Dr. Edward Kansian, but I was, how does Ed say this? He said, no matter who I remember to thank, I have to humbly remember I stand on the shoulders of giants with what I do. So I, there's so many people that train me, but, um, the work of Dr. Eric Kansian, who's emeritus at Harvard, um, who actually coined the phrase self-medication hypothesis about wow. why people become addicted to drugs. And he's been just such a kind and like, um, generous mentor. Um, and Mark Albanese, um, Jan Kaufman, Nancy Rappaport. These are all people from Harvard. Um, Rick Salwin, who and, and Fran Hickman, those are two people that I co-created the um, the services at Danbury Hospital. Rick and so, and how Sally. did these people really help get to where you are? Today? Oh, how did they help me? Just well, here's the thing: don't be shy to ask people who are already experienced to help you, because really good, skilled people want to give. There's a regenerative, regenerative. Um, piece where you want to teach like the next generation of people like. And you want to save them time, and you want to really help them learn. Because like, you kind of see it's your former self almost. Yeah, and I mean, it, unless you're like just a jerk, you don't see like new students as competition. You're like, oh, I want to save you. Like, like I will always say to someone that comes to me, I'll go, go for that terminal degree. Oh, I don't know if I got Just do it. Do it. Do it. Like, you know. Right. And so I just have had so many people that <coughs> took me under their wing. And it doesn't mean we always agreed. Like, sometimes we would have knockdown, drag out fights. But around principles, you know, not around stupid things. And, um, and you know, again, none of us is, is as smart as all of us. Um, together with my mentors, like, we would co-create things and come up with new ideas. And, um, I mean, I have a lot of mentors from reading about them. But, like, um, and then I don't even know, like, kind of, I would say, 
everybody that works here, we're kind of mentors to each other. We kind of like supervise each other. But like, I would say I've had, I don't know, 50 people who strongly influence me for the good. I've had a lot of people that I learned the opposite of what I wanted to do from too, but we call them mentors, but like, ooh, I'm never going to do that. But that's also Um, valuable information. Very valuable. You're like, oh, I want to make sure I don't end up doing something like that. You know, it's kind of like the the anti-poster child almost. Well, and it's you learn that if you work in hospital systems because there's all kinds of characters there, but I've just had so many mentors. I'd probably say Ed Cansian's thinking really helped me very much and his humility and um, always looking for the root of the suffering in the person mm-hmm. rather than intellectualizing right away and getting a label of the illness and syndrome and whatever. And all that is necessary. And I'm not saying anything against that. And it's certainly absolutely necessary for insurance purposes etc but like to look for the experience of the person would probably Ed Cansian's number one yay Ed he's the best well that's awesome thanks yeah. for taking the time to sit with me and you know get to know you a little bit this is so fun I thought I would sound dumber than I hopefully it did so that's good <laughs> so for more information about Liz and Insight Counseling head over to insightcounselingllc.com you can also request an appointment to info at insightcounselingllc.com <laughs>